This is Ideas at the House, a podcast that brings you live event recordings from the stages of the Sydney Opera House. You may have heard that we have just run a festival called Antidote, where people came from all over the world to talk about how we can make this planet a better place for all of us. If you missed it, don't fret. You'll get a new talk delivered every Friday right here in your podcast app. And kicking things off is a live recording of the Sydney Morning Herald's podcast, Please Explain. This episode marks the first 100 days of the Prime Ministership of Scott Morrison, whose government many thought would not be returned. Herald journos David Crowe, Shane Wright and Jacqueline Maley join host Tory Maguire to consider how the government is going and what we can expect to see as the new PM really gets comfy in Parliament House. I have always believed in miracles. These are the quiet Australians who have won a great victory tonight. The first 100 days of a new government are crucial for any Prime Minister. It's their first opportunity to put into action a policy agenda promised to voters in an election, and the time when Australians are most open to big plans and big ideas. But an uncharacteristic calm has descended over the nation's capital. We're on your side. That's what matters. We're on your side. The Liberal Party is on your side. The National Party is on your side. After having to do a quick and frenetic sell job on himself in a campaign many thought to be unwinnable, Scott Morrison's style is beginning to emerge. The PM has laid out his priorities for the next three years. Tax relief, deregulation, infrastructure, drought and youth suicide. He's told colleagues he doesn't want his agenda to be treated like a fast food meal. Instead, it is there to be digested. Gone from the Parliament are Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott, Julie Bishop and Christopher Pine, active members of the decade-long civil war that drove the coalition to breaking point. This is my leader. And I'm ambitious for him. Liberal MPs remarked that phone calls from their colleagues are less frequent than they once were. There are fewer gaffes on Sky News, more message discipline. I respect people who disagree with my opinion and I think we have to learn to disagree better. The anniversary of Scott Morrison's rise to the top job passed with barely a comment from within government ranks. They say they're getting on with the job with no time to mull over the past. Is the plan for less talking and more doing working out? This is Please Explain. I'm Tori Maguire. Special guests David Crowe, Shane Wright and Jacqueline Maley join me to dissect the first 100 days of an administration many thought would never exist. Good afternoon. Welcome to the first ever live recording of Please Explain, which is the National uh, Affairs weekly podcast from the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. My name is Tori Maguire. I'm the national um, editor of those two mastheads, and I'm also the host of Please Explain, which comes out every Thursday afternoon. Every week I get to dragoon some of the best and most experienced journalists in the country to take us on a deep dive into whatever is the biggest news story of the week. Um, And occasionally I rope in an expert from elsewhere. It's normally very heavily tied to the news cycle, so it's a bit of a seat of the pants operation, but the Antidote uh, team wanted us to be planning ahead a little further. So I was very pleased when I discovered that today marks 106 days since the election of the Morrison government. The first 100 days of any administration is worthy of close examination. So to do that for us today, I'm joined by three Please Explain favourites. David Crowe is our Chief Political Correspondent based in Parliament House in Canberra. 
David is actually a royal fashion commentator trapped inside the body of one of Australia's most prolific and respected political correspondents. He's also, also the author of this brand new book called Venom, Vendettas, Betrayals and the Price of Power, which is hot off the presses. It only came out last week and it is about the last five years or so of turmoil within the Liberal Party. Um, from the Sydney newsroom, we're joined by Jacqueline Maley, who's a senior writer with a weekly column in the Sun-Herald, in which she regularly dives into the choppy waters of federal politics. And also from the Parliament Bureau, Shane Wright, our senior economics correspondent. And I'm willing to take bets of up to $10 from each of you that Shane will work a Kate Bush reference into his analysis <laughs> for us today. Um, we will get right to it because the first 100 days of the elected Morrison government is a huge topic and there's a lot to discuss. So I want to start by asking each of you, David first, on your first overall impression of how um, Scott Morrison's prime ministership is going. Well, it's going uh, relatively smoothly because he's, he's proven to be very good at one of the, the core skills in politics, which is managing expectations. And he's reduced expectations, I think. Um, people did not expect him to win that election. He played the expectations management game at the election superbly when you compare it, say, with Malcolm Turnbull last year who led people to think that there was a chance he might win some of those by-elections and then did not. Um, it was a very different playbook from Scott Morrison. Um, it's a steady-as-she-goes type of attitude towards government since winning that election. But, of course, we're yet to see what he really stands for, what he really wants to get done. They've passed their tax cuts that they promised before the election, that's done. What else do they need to do? What else do they really want to do? What does he stand for as an individual? That's something that we're still waiting to see. Jack, what's your overarching impression of, of the start of this administration? Well, I think, you know, Scott Morrison is an incredibly clever politician, probably the most clever politician we've had as a Prime Minister, at least in the last three, I'd say. Um, That's <laughs> a can, low. I know, it's a low level to start You from. can count back that far. Um, and I think one of the cleverest things he's done is to keep expectations very low. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of one way of putting it. It's kind of a good spin on it. The other spin you could put on it is that he doesn't have an agenda. Um, which is also true. Um, and without an agenda, um, you know, I, th I, think we, I think Australians got so tired of politicians and politics over the last five to ten years um, that he's actually clever enough to realise that he needs to be as quiet as possible. And so he's joined the quietest. Yeah, I do. I do think so. He's unobtrusive and he's kind of getting out of our faces. And that's probably the cleverest thing he can do. But the flip side of that is that, yeah, he will need to produce, presumably produce an agenda at some stage and prosecute it. Shane, you've been in the Canberra Press Gallery for quite some time now. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, What's your impression? You've seen a lot of Prime Minister's first 100 days up close. How do you think this one's gone? Uh, it's meh. It's a bit beige. <laughs> like, it, it just... And it goes to what Jackie said, that, that lack of agenda mm. is permeating, permeating itself because, yes, I've given people a tax cut, like, point to a government that has failed to deliver a tax cut. Like, it, giving people money is not the hardest thing going around. But beyond that, and uh, you get to, say, the speech he gave just the other day to the public service where he said told public servants, don't give us an agenda, and then said to his ministers, come on, guys and girls, you've got to come up with some ideas. And so I think they're still working a way around the fact... Like, I think, personally, Morrison's travelling along quite reasonably in that regard, but the policy le levers amongst his cabinet 
isn't working there because they haven't done, they haven't right. got great plans or even ideas to throw forward and rally around. Is that not okay though that they're taking their time to come up with those policies? Because we're constantly complaining about short-termism in Australian politics and how no one, like policies don't survive beyond the next news poll. Is it not good that a new government would take a deep breath, go a bit quiet and spend some time planning what they should do? But they, so yes, this is the last 100 days, but they had an election before that mm. and they had been in power since August. So if you haven't worked out where you're going, and the whole an election campaign is supposed to be that great battle of ideas, it was the, the election was about the battle to bring down Labor's ideas mm. as opposed to warming when, up their own. One of the one of the things to watch for at the moment in media coverage of the of the government is the phrase deep dive. When you see that phrase, it means that somebody's been briefed about some policy work that the government's doing behind the scenes. Oh, we're doing a deep dive on filling the blanks, mental health, drought. Um, the economy, trade, whatever. And it's a funny kind of phrase because it means that they're doing policy work behind the scenes, but they expect some kind of um, praise for doing, for doing a, the a deep dive. Right. Well, deep well, dive is what they're meant nice. to do, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the job. You won the election. It's your job to come up with some ideas from now on. You don't get a pat on the back just because you're doing the deep dive behind the scenes. Do they still do green papers and white papers into policy development? No, it's too dangerous. I mean, uh, the last time we saw that was tax policy, reform the federation, things like that. Big ideas that deserve a green paper and a white paper and a lot of thought. And that just brought too much political risk for Malcolm Turnbull and we don't see it anymore. Come on, name, name what the tax white paper was. What it was, what it was called. Uh, no, no idea of the reform, re semicolon form, and they didn't even get, and they didn't even start the federation white and, paper. And uh, why, paper process. why didn't that paper sell like hot? I know, uh, <laughs> like Venom would have been a much better title. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps just because of the timing of events like the G20 and the G7, um, Scott Morrison's the beginning of his prime ministership has been dominated by global affairs, and he has been walking the world stage. Let's talk about that in some detail. You were at the G20 in Japan. That wasn't... It was in Osaka yeah. uh, six weeks, eight weeks ago. It feels like longer ago than, than that. It's actually... And then he, last year, he, uh, Morrison, shortly after becoming Prime Minister, was at the G20 in Argentina. But let's face it, these events are now turning into the G2. It's basically <laughs> Trump and Xi every time, talking about China and the United States and their <laughs> trade negotiations. You go to a summit... Everybody goes there expecting, will there be... It's like deal or no deal. Will they, <laughs> will they make some progress? And then you, you see a photo op where they have dinner together and they seem to be getting along. And then a month after the G2 summit, they're not getting along and somebody's um, jacked up their tariffs and you, you get this cooling again. So it's a difficult kind of environment for Morrison to navigate. He doesn't have a big pedigree on... Um, or a strong interest in his past on global affairs. When he first became treasurer, he didn't even go to some of the big global events that were discussing the world economy at the time. He left that to Matthias Cormann as the finance minister. So I don't think it was something where he had strong convictions about what he wanted to do on the world stage. But now as prime minister, that's a core part of his job. And I think he's, he's had a reasonable start. He doesn't, he doesn't go to these events or summits now, under any illusion about Australians' ability to influence Xi or Trump, but he does try to tread a middle path between them. Um, 
his speeches have been interesting because I think he gives much more credence to the um, American point of view of the trade relationship with China and China's rising power without being directly overly critical of China. I think it's really fundamental that he says China's now an advanced economy. And what he's saying is the preferential rules that China's benefited from in the past, they've got to come to an end because we're now in a new world where it's an advanced economy just like the States, just like us, gets the same treatment. And it's not an easy thing to get the Chinese to acknowledge and to get them to change the way they work, but that's his position. Jack, operating on the, glo on the global stage is really just about relationship building in the same that any other kind of politics is. And we've seen prime ministers before, like when Julia Gillard became prime minister, she actually made this excruciating comment about how, oh, actually I wish I was at home, mm. you know, as classroom in Adelaide rather mm. than being at this summit. But then turned out to be pretty good mm. at dealing with other global leaders mm. and is now widely respected in those circles. Scott Morrison is a clearly a relationship builder and he's clearly building a relationship with Donald Trump, isn't he? Yeah, that's what I find the most interesting thing about Scott Morrison's international sort of career so far is that he's, um, he's I don't know, I don't know if I dare call it a bromance, but there's certainly... <laughs> um, Please don't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a rapport, shall we call yeah. it that, between Donald Trump and Scott Morrison. And it's interesting to me because Donald Trump, I, would, I, I think he's probably wild, you know, widely um, disapproved of, um, to put it gently, within, to, within Australia, within domestic circles. But I suspect that it plays quite well for him, for Morrison nonetheless, to be seen to be getting along well with Trump. And we have to have a relationship. A rel because we, everybody is pragmatic enough to realise that we have to have a good relationship with, with um, the US president. And also, he kind of almost looks like a Trump whisperer because Trump, let's face it, just, you know, alienates and offends. You know, he's more likely to alienate and offend his closest allies, the US's closest allies, i.e. people like us, than he is, you know, North Korea or, you know, the world's worst dictators. So the fact that we're one of the allies that, um, you know, Trump seems to have a feeling for um, probably plays quite well for Morrison in the domestic sphere. Because that's, I mean, that's all they care about, isn't it, really? I mean, he doesn't, he, it's not like he's got a, at the moment, he's got, he hasn't got a trade deal to prosecute or anything like that. Like, when he goes overseas, he's really just doing it at the moment in terms of the, the, how it looks for him at home. Mm. Shane, um, navigating our position in this current trade war between the US and China mm. is so complicated and fraught. How do you think... Morrison is handling it. Um, he started out originally sort of saying, well, we can't be forced to choose between our friends and our customers, which was a very maybe inelegant but accurate assessment mm. of the situation. Yeah. His language has shifted in recent times to potentially be demonstrating a, a bit closer more to the a US. A bit more Trumpy. Yeah, a bit more a bit Trumpy. More Trumpy. Um, yeah. what, what would your advice be to him on how to walk this particular type? Well, we are in... The, this is the metaphorical rock and hard place. And I, I was actually, as Jackie was speaking, I was thinking of uh, when Rudd, Rudd went over to the States ahead of the presidential election that saw Barack Obama elected and he went and saw John McCain and Hillary Clinton and Obama. Now, can you imagine next year Scott Morrison being in the States, does he go and see Joe Biden or Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren? Warren? Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. 
And you can imagine how the President of the United States might reflect mm. and take to social media to say, why is ScoMo visiting these losers? Because mm. uh, don't we know I'm going to win? And Rudd did that because he knew, right, that he had to be talk to both sides, that whole bipartisan approach, and, he res and it was well, re everyone respected McCain and everyone respected Clinton and everyone was thinking, what the hell, is, who's this guy, Obama? Mm. So you could see what he was doing. You bring forward a dozen years and you go, how much more difficult it is. When it gets to trade, somewhere along the line, you've gone, we've gone to someone, in, someone who was close to the United States will have to say, well, guys, this trade war is killing us. And mm. there were actually figures just out uh, like on Friday night about the collapse going on in international trade, exports and imports in the US, in China, in Germany, all across Europe are absolutely falling away. And that's why there's all this discussion about a US recession, Germany's probably in recession, what else is happening? This is a direct consequence of, of the Trump trade agenda. And somewhere along the line, everyone who's on America's side is gonna say, well, Don, Maybe we have to have a have a rethink, and you're going to whether Scott Morrison's got the ability. Do don't we, know. Do we know whether he did that? Like he had the sort of you know off off books twenty minute chat with Donald Trump at the G7 recently. The w the word is that he does stand up for that position when he talks to Trump and the Trump mm. administration, and Australia does put that view mm. to the to the group of people around Donald Trump. But we live in a world now where none of that can matter. Australia has to actually argue really hard with some of the Trump administration to put our position on trade, and it may not actually influence Trump. Australia's been pretty effective, actually, at dealing with this very volatile US administration. When Trump wanted to put some tariffs on us, we didn't stop them being put on our steel and aluminium by talking to the economic advisers to Donald Trump. We went straight to the Defence Secretary and said, we've been mates and we've fought in wars for 100 years side by side with Americans, don't put the tariffs on it. That's what worked with Donald Trump. And I think that's where Morrison has actually built the relationship with Donald Trump. The thing to watch out for there is that all these relationships um, can come at a cost. It's interesting that in Australia we often say, well, look, it's great that the Prime Minister is getting along personally very well with the United States President. Julie Gillard got along very well with Barack Obama. And because of that, that, that cleared the way actually for an important defence relationship, which is the stationing of Marines in uh, the Northern Territory. They, Marines, US Marines come in there with a lot of gear, constantly coming through the Northern Territory with a new base up there. What's Donald Trump going to want from Scott Morrison? We've already seen uh, one thing in terms of the ship going to the Straits of Hormuz, but will there be more? What, how will that close personal relationship pan out if Trump wants something? Let's move on to the economy, and specifically the Australian economy. I have a lot of suggestions here from Shane on how we should discuss this. Since the election in the last 100 days, we have had two interest rate cuts. The trade war has escalated. We've had a downgrade in key economic forecasts by the RBA. The RBA and various ministers have stopped being polite about each other, um, and in fact, there's been attacks on the RBA governor, governor from both sides mm. of the parliament, which I, I found some of that to be quite shocking, that, that people like Andrew Lee would publicly come out and smash the head of our Reserve Bank yeah. over his handling of policy. I, I hadn't seen anything like that before. 
Um, but the like the budget surplus is pretty in pretty good shape because of the resources sector. Um, how how do you think managing the economy is going in the first hundred days? Well, five days after the election, Phil Lowe gets up and says, for the first time anyone can remember, we're going to discuss cutting interest rates at the next board meeting. Um, so, the, like, this is the part of the issue that comes around around budget coverage, political coverage, and the economic coverage ever since Costello and Keating saying the surplus is fantastic, that's how you judge economic management. No, it's never been that. That's how you balance books. It's whether people have got jobs, whether people are getting employment, whether the housing cycle is going, coming or whatever, um, whether your kids have got a chance to kind of get education and get jobs going forward. That's where the economy hits the rubber hits the road and you had, it's still remarkable what Phil Lowe said and called out the federal government, the state governments on infrastructure and on uh, structural reform. Like we don't see that from a Reserve Bank governor. Then you, you had the proof of life video as I call it where Phil Lowe is dragged down to Melbourne to get Treasury telling him, oh, this is what we're doing on infrastructure for the next 10 years. Um, and then Phil sits next to Josh Frydenberg and Josh says, isn't everything great, Phil? And Phil, through his central bank teeth, goes, yeah, right. He doesn't have a great poker face. Does <laughs> he, he doesn't. Right? He doesn't. And so this, this week, on Wednesday, national accounts come out. It's going to show the economy growing at its slowest, if not since, two th since the 2000 tech wreck uh, recession that we narrowly avoided. It could be as bad as the 1991, end of 91 recession. You can keep talking about how great the economy is, but since the, since the election, unemployment's gone up, wages haven't gone up, and the economy's slowed. Like, that's a fantastic measure of economic uh, prowess by any measure. So what is it that the people who are attacking the Reserve Bank want the Reserve Bank to do? Because uh, is there anything else available to them other than dropping interest rates? And this is it, like, the argument about the RBA has been they should have gone earlier. And, like, there had been some discussion whether they would have cut rates during the election. They didn't. Uh, there, are, there were people calling for uh, cuts late last year. They've, and that group had been proven right. We get to this point, markets are saying we'll be at 0.5 somewhere next year. And the RBA has been discussing about quantitative easing. Maybe not printing money yet, uh, but Can you just explain to me what quantitative right. easing is? It, at its simplest, it is turning on a printing press, printing out 50 and 20 buck notes, giving them to everyone and go and spending it because the RBA collect, uh, creates money. In this case, it would be the Reserve Bank deciding to buy government bonds. The government says, right, we're going to issue another billion or five billion in debt. The Reserve Bank buys that that money is then transferred through the banking system into the overall economy. And this is what we saw through the GFC. Now, with the fact that the RBA is discussing this right now tells you what they think. Because, and this has been the other thing from Phil Lowe and from the bank is saying, right, unemployment is not low enough. The low unemployment has to go lower. And Josh and Scott and Michaelia, who's the employment minister, has none of them have said anything, how are we going to get unemployment down from 5.2 to 4.5 or below? Yeah. 
it that, gets, that issue hasn't been debated at all. And it gets back to <coughs> what is the agenda, what do they want mm. to do, do they know how they're going to achieve it? And on the economy, most of that is actually quite unclear. And partly because there's a logical reason why they don't want to go there. There was an interview with uh, Josh Frydenberg on radio last week or the week before where he was asked three times, are we at risk of a recession? He's not going to answer that. It's, uh, it's just mm. too dangerous for a treasurer to use the R word and start lowering expectations in that way and, or, or even encouraging doubts or fears about the state of the economy. But there's no sign at the moment that they actually have a plan in the desk drawer that they bring out when the R, R word becomes real and they've got to stimulate the economy in some way. And um, maybe they would like to rely more on the Reserve Bank to put some money into the economy to, to push things along, but sooner or later they're going to have to have a plan of their own that shows that they're responding to, to these events because uh, all the signs are that, that um, China and the States will, will keep this trade war going and it could really turn into a, an economic um, spiral that... that um, and you haven't... It means something's got to be done here. And you haven't got to October 31 when Boris and his bears decide <laughs> to leave the EU. Like that, that is the other big economic shock that's just uh, wandering down uh, the, the path. Whatever happened... Well, it wasn't so long ago that, that Josh Frydenberg and the government were telling us that, um, you know, that the, the tax cuts that we were all getting were going to have it's a simulatory different. effect on the economy. I mean, and that seems to have sort of disappeared or um, evaporated as an idea. I mean, Josh Frydenberg to me looks, in, you know, I, I mean, no one doubts his sort of, um, his efficacy and his, well, his, his smarts and his diligence, I think, particularly if you've dealt with him. But he does look increasingly desperate. He's sort of giving these speeches. He's, he, you know, he's doing these forced press conferences with Phil Lowe's like he did. You should have, he should have learned from the Kenneth Hay. Uh, Hay um, <laughs> should have, yeah. Embarrassment. Handing over. Yeah. Oh, I'm not, <laughs> handing <laughs> over. Oh, I'm not going to do it. About in, a smile, hey, Kenneth? No. In his defence, I thought he... he, he the, Josh Frydenberg said the other day that business should be investing more. Rather than taking all their profits and just using them for share buybacks and dividends, they should actually put that into investing in their own businesses, creating some jobs and helping everybody that way. I mean, then business got very defensive mm. and pushed back and said, how dare you tell us what to do? Well, he, he wasn't dictating to them. No. He wasn't trying to abuse his authority. Is he, isn't, that, isn't that a little bit of a sort of impotent show if the best you can do as treasurer is stand up and sort of semi-ask, semi-plead with business to yeah. maybe, you know, reinvest a little bit of their money because God knows we need somebody to put some money into the economy. We don't have any plans yeah. to do it. And he, so and, he did, and he did gild the lily a little because he was a bit selective with his figures. Yeah. And surprising but, I'd accuse a treasurer of being selective with <laughs> figures, but he said, oh, we... $29 billion was uh, handed back out to shareholders. It was increased from $12 billion the year before because $15 billion of that $29 was BHP, which had, had a special one-off thing that they'd signalled yonks ago. Well, Qantas is doing a share yeah. buyback buy buy right now, so I think he had a point. However, the effect was to highlight the onus is on him to actually come up mm. with a plan. Now, he was well within his rights to make this point to business, but sooner or later, the buck stops with him. So every, every remark on this front basically has the effect of reminding everybody, well, he's got to have an answer too. So this is a very complicated question, so bear with me, because it relates to the economy, security and the world stage. We are one of the most exposed economies on the planet to China and to trade with China. I think 35% of our exports go to China. And 
we have a complicated relationship with them that seems to get more complicated every day. And the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age have done a huge amount of reporting in the last 18 months about Chinese influence here in Australia uh, uh, over business and politics. There are tensions over the South China Sea. There is the trade war. How is the, the government currently handling that delicate balance between keeping that relationship open while also not being pushed around, given the risks that we face? I think uh, it's incredibly uh, difficult for the government at the moment, and they're very, um, I guess, um, trying to be soft and subtle on some of these questions in terms of uh, stating Australia's position. But I think there's going to come a time when they've actually got to be far more assertive, and I think that's going to be really difficult for them. The Chinese government is incredibly sensitive. Getting back to our reporting, or the, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age reporting about events connected to China, we've had this big series on Crown Casino and some of the big-time gamblers who go there, including one of President Xi's cousins. Well, when um, some American outlets picked up on that story, the journalist involved got expelled from China, had, had his visa um, not renewed, and so he's had to, he's had to leave Beijing. So they, there were all manner of ways in which mm. they, they push back. And even the fact that Australia, the, the Morrison government, has expressed disappointment at the detention of an Australian citizen um, in Beijing, accused of spying by the Chinese authority, even the Australian government's um, expression of concern about that has has triggered a, you know, a fierce response from the Chinese government. So they push back hard against us. I think the onus is going to be on the Australian government to make sure it takes a, a pretty firm line on this rather than fall silent just because China's not happy. Mm. OK, let's move on to other policy areas. Can we talk about... Oh, um, sorry. Yeah. Can I talk about one other thing? Yeah. Which, of course, with Hong Kong, yeah. we don't know where Hong Kong is going to go yes. on this front. So that is the next... I mean, we're seeing this coverage every day of what's happening on the streets of Hong Kong. Um, Scott Morrison and uh, federal ministers have been very careful about what they say about this, but if there's a conflagration there and it really gets a lot worse, I think that's actually going to be a decisive moment for the Australian government well, there in are terms of how critical it is. There are 100,000 Australian citizens living in Hong Kong mm. and the Australian consulate there would have to be making plans for how to help those people in the case of a serious escalation. And I think that's also with things like Hong Kong where you're going to get uh, backbenchers kind of yes. voicing their own opinions and freelancing yeah. on those issues. <clears throat> people like Andrew Hastie obviously would be a case in point. Um, they're not going to stick to the government line and particularly if the government doesn't have a line, then they'll feel emboldened to say whatever they like about it. I was going to say, uh, if you, because I used to work for the West Australian, go to WA, they have a different view and it's much more mercantilist, much mm. more corporate. That's interesting. Because there is a state that we talk about 35% uh, of our trade goes to China. It's about 95% of Western Australia. Right. All that red earth and all that LNG that's heading up they're not up as there. exercised about the human rights issues? Oh, well, it's a tough life over in WA sometimes. <laughs> but, um, look, they, they have a... There's been a bit of pushback in there. There's pushback against Hasty. Um, within the Liberal Party in WA and at the corporate level in WA saying, well, look, don't kill off our golden oh, cow. Yes. Yeah. Like that, and, and this is the issue that, go, that goes is... to your, that point. Like, we are spending about... sending $250, 300000000000 billion worth of stuff. Mm. Um, we're we're, we're looking at a moving 
target. I mean, it's so hard. There's been a big change that's gone on for now five, six years. It was only in about 2016 that the federal government, our government was considering ratifying an extradition treaty mm. with China mm. so that if there was somebody accused of, of an offence in China, they could extradite them from Sydney. They were trying to get some of their former officials back home. Some of those people are still in Cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> now, the backbench basically pushed back against that and forced Malcolm Turnbull to retreat and they, they dropped that plan. It's an interesting parallel with Hong Kong where the extradition treaty became the lightning rod for that, for that issue. Mm. This is a dynamic I think we'll see more of where it's actually on the, the, the government backbench where we see Andrew Hastie from WA or other members speaking up about human rights in, in, uh, in China. So even though there might be some in Cabinet who want to get along with China and not make waves, uh, their own side of politics, the Liberal side of politics, mm. will not make that easy for them. Okay. I want to talk about energy policy because the, the failure of the National Energy Guarantee really was part of the conflagration that brought about the end of Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership. But the issue of energy security and pricing has not gone away. What is the Morrison government going to do about energy policy? Well, do they have one? I mean, <laughs> they don't appear to. Um, the, in terms of emissions reduction, they stick to their line, which is that we're on track, you know, we're on track to meet our emissions reduction targets. Oh, that's... Or we're going to meet them in a... Such a We're going to meet them in a canter <laughs> or we're smashing them, or, you know, whatever yeah. language you want to use, which is actually an unrefutable, sort of an irrefutable <laughs> assertion that we're going to meet a target that... We're not on track to meet, but it's in the future, so you can't sort That's of tell right. us And they went up again. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and just despite the data which shows that they just keep going up. So that's kind of one issue. I think they're just going to ignore that for as long as they possibly can. In terms of energy prices, I mean, that's a, that's a totally different... They're having, they're, they've actually had some success. Like, you can see it in the inflation figures that energy uh, prices around electricity and gas in the last quarter have come down a little bit. Whether What's that? Why? Why has that happened? Because we still... Well, some of the policies that they have put in place effectively don't send so much out of the country. And that warning, like, we haven't seen the magical big stick, but, like, mm. it's Angus's Taylor's winding it around like, a, like Hermione's wand. It's around there somewhere, but it's having that sort of impact. How long it will last is another story. And there's been a change on global markets, which has been the other key factor in keeping a lid on prices. But the question comes, will, will Melburnians be able to get through another summer using the air conditioning when they get home at four or five o'clock in the afternoon? Will Queenslanders be able to turn on their coal-fired um, fans? No one's exactly sure. And that's it, where it'll get... They're messy. strong on intervention now, aren't they, from mm. the Liberal government? Mm. The transition has been towards <clears throat> beating the companies around the head with... Um, with stronger regulation, things like default prices, which can actually be good for consumers, where consumers get better information about the price they're being charged by their electricity utility. Um, and those uh, gas controls that Shane mentioned, which are forcing companies to provide more gas to the domestic market rather than putting it on a ship and sending it to China or Japan. Those things actually have been, I think, beneficial for consumers. The, the real disgrace in government is that they discovered that they needed to do things like gas reservation too late 
you know, 10 years ago, everybody thought it was great to put every, every bit of gas on a ship as much as you could possibly put and send it over, overseas. Now they suddenly realise that we need it. Where's the long-term thinking in the government? That's an indictment of them. Um, but I think we're still suffering from the fact that there is no long-standing, settled climate change and energy policy which is cohesive and coherent. And until they sort that out, I think we're going to see patchwork policy in this field. And I think um, it's very unlikely that you'd see the current government do anything that, that opens Pandora's box on climate change because they won't want to increase the emissions target beyond 26%, which is their stated policy at the moment. It just becomes too difficult. We saw that um, become an issue that really uh, wrecked Malcolm Turnbull's government. Um, Scott Morrison has more authority, in a sense, from the election victory, but he still runs the same risk, risk of inflaming tensions on his own side of politics. And I, I think that he will try to get through three years talking about meeting targets in a canter without actually reopening the policy. And he has no does incentive he, to do otherwise, really. Does he have a mandate to put up a nuclear power station safe at Palm Beach? Hmm. <laughs> Don't know. Like, good spot yeah. for it, they, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, just, yeah. That's, that's yeah. been the... That would guarantee the election of Zali Stegall from here to eternity. <laughs> <laughs> um, another very difficult issue is border security and asylum seekers. I think the one thing that most Australians would have known about Scott Morrison before he came, became Prime Minister was that he stopped the boats. How's he handling that issue at the moment? I think his, um, his brand is stopping the boats and being pretty tough. I think it's, it's actually getting difficult for him again. It does move in cycles. I mean, I think it's been politically effective for the conservative side of politics to take a firm line <coughs> against boat arrivals uh, for, for asylum seekers. Labor had to back, basically back them on that back in 2013. That's because it is incredibly politically potent. Um, Scott Morrison is an interesting figure in that way because of his religious faith as well. And I think there are moments in his, in his past where he's appeared to be so heartless. Um, there was a 21, 2011 sorry, um, incident where there were some asylum seekers who wanted to come to Sydney for a funeral for some of their family members who died. Um, Scott Morrison initially... Uh, rejected that. He got called out by Joe Hockey as Treasurer, mm. saying that that was just the wrong, that's not the Australian way. And Scott Morrison backed down. I think it's interesting at the moment with the Tamil family that, is, uh, that authorities are trying to deport, um, it, it brings up some of the same issues where he wants to be firm, but he cannot be too personally heartless. And it's a very difficult line for him to, mm. to walk. That family, uh, that's a very potent story, isn't it, Jack? Because mm -hmm. they, there's a, they've got a lot of supporters in areas that you wouldn't expect support to come from. I mean, Alan Jones has been very vocal mm. um, about that family. But, that, you know, they're a family that have been living successfully in a country town in Australia. They're not sort of um, off on an, in offshore detention somewhere. It's a very emotional sort of issue, isn't it, navigating yeah. it? Yeah, I, I've, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, this is something that um, is really upsetting and I know it's been, like, really big on Twitter and that kind of thing. I do wonder... I haven't seen the nightly news or anything. I wonder how much it permeates into sort of everyday Australians' you know, news feed. Um, but I think that combined with the fact that they're trying to roll back the Medivac legislation, which just seems very, very unnecessary, to, in my opinion, um, and unnecessarily heartless and also really 
highlights how disingenuous the government was over that legislation. And you remember all the rhetoric at the time because it was just before the election was about how we were going to get boats, you know, flood, the floodgates were going to open. I think Peter Dutton even uh, said that, you know, the queues in hospitals were going to be longer and we would have to, you know, get sent to the back of the queue behind these hordes of refugees who were going to come. Um, you know, the, the, the rhetoric is very, very overblown. I, I suspect that as an issue, um, border security is just kind of banked for the coalition. So if they're smart or if they're any, in any way, dare I say it, decent about it, um, they, they, they could just, just leave it, really, leave settings as they are. So speaking of other issues of personal branding, let's talk about the culture wars. Yeah. Why are we talking about toilets so much at the moment? <laughs> It's a natural thing, isn't it? It's a very natural thing. Everybody needs to go to them. They um, do. You know, they're universal. I was surprised that that blew up in the last week. And I thought, given all the economic issues that we're talking about and the issues of security. global security um, and uh, stability, uh, I thought that was, that was a shocking issue to have suddenly become a mainstream national question because there was no need for anybody to buy into it it's, a, it, um, it's not a problem that's... Um, it's a talking point, certainly, but it's not a pressing national problem. And to see, um, to see the Prime Minister suddenly buy into it took me by surprise because I think, for most part, he has been reducing expectations and avoiding buying into unnecessary disputes. Right? I mean, and I think that, that he's politically smart enough to know that he should be careful about which arguments he buys into. But he chose to buy into that, and I wonder whether it was partly because he was on 2GB and couldn't say to the radio host, look, I don't really have an opinion, or whether it reflects also strong personal values, which we could see more as the religious freedom debate plays out. Jack, was he feeding the chooks with that comment? Yeah, that's what I, I... My theory on it is that, I mean, I think he brought it up for precisely all the reasons you, you just outlined, you know, that it's just sort of like a talking point. All of a sudden, everybody's got to have an opinion on whether or not gender-neutral toilets are okay or not. Um, I think it just, it's, just an, it's just an issue where it, it's not about the detail of it. It's not even really about what it is. It's just like this is a kind of, you know, he's standing up for common sense. He's anti-political correctness. You know, it's, it's a signal to a certain, I suppose, segment of Australians who are worried about, I don't know, the pace of change or, or, or of social change. Um, I don't think he's, he's not stupid enough to prosecute any major cultural wars like Tony Abbott did with changing the Racial Discrimination Act, nothing that could actually affect people's lives or, dare I say it, you know, the yeah. vote in, um, in marginal electorates. Um, but this is just something he can, yeah, he can just feed the chooks with this I, stuff. I'm not, I'm not convinced yet. Like, I... Like we say, we know Scott Morrison, but this is only this is a guy who's only been in Parliament since '07. He does seem to have a so, thing about trans trans kids, and you know, it's something that is obviously he does get exercised. Yeah, about I know. I'm, I'm just wondering because he didn't restrict his language in that mm. interview. He he could have, but he chose not to. Mm. Yeah, he could be feeding the chooks, or this is something he fervently believes in. Okay. And you always, with all the all the politicians we've had to cover over the years, you always know that they've. Every one of them have got blind spots in some in mm, some spot. Yeah. Like that's just human nature. Is this area? Is this where we're starting to tease out that? And you, the way that uh, Crowey just touched on, like that reaction in uh, 2011, 2012 to that terrible catastrophe off Christmas Island, and not wanting to bring fam uh, family members back for a f funeral. That was also one of those little signs of the greater person. And I'm just. 
I don't know. I haven't got a haven't got a firm view. But is that the fact? I don't know. The toilet wars seems a strange path to go down. Well, you, got, we, you don't we know. know. We know that Morrison's very socially conservative, mm. and we know that you know the trans sort of issue, which is um, out of all proportion in the public debate to how many people it actually affects. I suppose is I think a bit of a sort of proxy issue for people who are not comfortable with the fact that they were not victorious in the same-sex marriage mm. debate. It's no longer okay to be homophobic, um, but tra the trans issue is sort of almost like a proxy issue, I think, for maybe a certain certain segment. And so the next test is religious freedom because right. Christian Porter's put the bill <laughs> out there with draft changes to prevent discrimination on religious grounds. Um, that seems to be a very measured response at the moment from Christian Porter the Attorney-General, the question is, will that satisfy the Liberal backbench? Will it satisfy religious groups in society? And will that have an effect on how Scott Morrison takes that through Parliament? We're yet to see. And in a sense, there is, a, there is an element where it is a rematch from 2017 over same-sex marriage. Mm. Everybody lines up in the same way on, on different sides of that, that argument. Uh, I think it will be a serious test for the government because the coalition backbench traditionally in the last decade, it just fights to the death over social policy. And, and don't forget as well that on the we've had the religious freedom legislation which we, or the, the draft legislation which came out last week, but the most important or probably the most controversial question will be, you know, has been is the one the Australian Law Reform Commission is looking at, which is the exemptions to dis the discrimination, anti-discrimination law. It's just sort of like a separate thing. Mm. So it's basically whether or not um, you can kick gay kids out of schools and whether or not you can hire and fire, um, you know, gay teachers in, right. in religious schools. So that, I think that, that's really the firecracker issue. And that and that's comes been back next down the year. Curve. Yeah. Yep. So that's been kicked down the road a bit. Okay. So the beauty of this book coming out during the 100 days is that it allows me to break the rule and talk about things that happened before. Um, I want to start by asking all three of you if you think... This, the, the book goes through five years of all-in brawling, starting with, you know, the demise of Tony Abbott, the demise of Malcolm Turnbull. It looks so positive from the outside at the moment because Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott, Julie Bishop, Christopher Pine are no longer in the parliament. So it looks like Scott Morrison has got clear air around him. But are there still battle scars that have the potential to come back and cause friction? Yeah, and I think they... They, they definitely are there, and in fact, that's why I called it venom, because I had this theme of poison through years and years of um, recent history of the Abbott, Morrison and Turnbull governments, and some of that poison is still there, because you don't have fights like these, um, which are so intense and so personal, um, with so much animosity, and then, just because you've got an election victory, pat each other on the back and say, oh, look, it's all bury the hatchet, let's move on. I mean, we do get that a lot from uh, ministers and from Scott Morrison himself these days, which is they don't want to talk about the mm. past. They don't want to tell everybody who did what, when, uh, during the last couple of years when they ripped each other to shreds over policy and personalities and, and went after Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott. Um, so I think uh, the tensions are still there. Whether they come to the surface is yet to be seen. I think Peter Dutton, uh, because of the way in which he uh, conducted things a year ago, 
I think it diminishes him as a potential leadership contender in the future. If, in a hypothetical world, we saw mistakes by Scott Morrison, would Peter Dutton be able to exploit them in the way that he exploited them against Malcolm Turnbull? I don't think it's, um, it's so easy for him. Uh, I think that, uh, well, I think the history is there. Malcolm Turnbull relied on Peter Dutton and Matthias Cormann on the conservative side of the party. Scott Morrison doesn't have to rely on them in the same way he, he gets the authority from his election victory. He's got leadership rules that mean that it takes a 66% vote to get rid of him. So he's more secure in that sense. But I'm going to be interested to watch some of the, the next tier of ministers, cabinet ministers, because they will still be angling for promotion. They'll still be looking for personal advancement because one of the lessons of the last couple of years is turmoil brings reward. Mm. Pe- sorry. sorry. It's, and so there will be people who will be plotting for something. If it's not the downfall of Scott Morrison, it'll be somebody else's downfall. Right. Jack, do you think the Liberal Party has dealt with its so-called women problem? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> you just have to... I mean, you just have to look at the numbers of women they've got in Cabinet and you'd have to say no. Um, so It's an improvement, though, right? Yeah, I, I, think, I think Scott Morrison's gonna, done a good job of, um, of making it look like it's gone away. I don't know if it has gone away. I don't know if culturally there's any, you know, if there's any improvement there. Um, there was supposed to be... Remember how we were supposed to have an investigation into the bullying and, um, mm. you know... Um, misogynistic bullying allegations that were made. Never seen the light of day. Yeah, never heard, never heard anything mm. about that. Um, so, no, I don't think so. One of the things that's come up a lot since <clears throat> the election is how the hell did they pull this off? Um, because it shocked everyone, not least because of the polling being the way that it was. We, will talk, we won't talk about polling because we've only got 10 more minutes left. There's <laughs> too much to say on that. But I just want to read a very short bit out of the book because I found this so interesting, David... When you write about um, him, about Scott Morrison sitting down with his core team of advisers before the election to plot a path, you say, um, like a goat track to a summit, the path was so difficult it could only be traversed in the best weather. The coalition would need to win at least two seats from Labor, Lindsay in Western Sydney and Herbert in Queensland. It would need to stem its losses in Melbourne, where a redistribution meant some of its seats were likely to fall to Labor. It would have to hold ground in Western Australia. It would try to pick up two or three seats in Tasmania and recover the regional electorate of Indi in Northern Victoria. All this seemed unlikely, even outlandish, when the research was so dire, but there was only one way forward, and so the climb began. Shane, you were on the campaign at the very beginning, the first week. You were actually on the shortened bus. Yeah. And they were pretty upbeat in that first first week. They really thought they had it in the bag. Um, But interestingly, your counterpart, Eric Bagshaw, who was on the Morrison bus... He was later in the the campaign, uh, Eric. Yeah, so I was in the first week. I remember I had... Um, drinks with Shorten, and yeah, there was a confidence. Mm. There was confidence in the polling, confidence in their message, confidence in the policy. And in terms of, like, yes, we've talked a lot, uh, say, about the 93 election where you had an opposition go with a huge policy agenda. And they, they were aware of that and they weren't afraid of it because their polling and their feedback had been things... It's going to work. And the, the mirror of the goat track was, yes, we will hold the line in Tassie. We will pick up more seats in Victoria. Um, we will pick 
pick up Gilmore in New South Wales, we'll hold the line and we'll pick up maybe a couple of regional seats in Queensland. And in WA, where there's whole sets, whole sets of polling over there had shown that they were going to pick up seats as well. So you could see that's, that's the confidence um, that was feeding into, into them and including, in, it wasn't just Shorten, Bowen and others, including Plibersek, were there. And I, I think one of the saddest phone calls I ever had was on the day after the election, talking to Chris Bowen. I said, oh, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm taking my daughter to the footy. It's a bit strange because I was expecting to be in Canberra today, mm. getting briefed on how we're going to turn around the budget. That's, so that's the, that's the humanity of that, at that aspect of what was going through their minds. But, David, Scott Morrison really had confidence the whole way through that yes. campaign that he could do this, didn't he? And some of the yeah. people around him, the, the really close team around him, had um, that almost evangelical mm. confidence. They did have that. But they'd also done some dry runs. They'd done some test runs earlier, earlier in 2019 where he went to uh, seats in Brisbane and got a pretty good reaction mm. from voters at cafes and pubs. Um, in January of this year, he, um, he went on a personal holiday and drove his wife and the kids down to Nowra and the Shoalhaven and they stayed around there and they went to the, the pub at Shoalhaven Heads. And again, he got a good reaction from voters. So they were confident that his kind of daggy dad, suburban bloke um, persona was working effectively with voters and that gave them some confidence. But also they, I think history shows, they had much better polling than Labor. Um, they knew that they had advantages in some seats. For instance, there was an interesting seat up in, Bris in Queensland, um, where the, Longman, where they knew that they were ahead. But rather than send Scott Morrison into it, say, two weeks before polling day, which would then tip off Labor that they knew they had a chance, they left it until the last minute. Uh, and so Labor were completely blindsided by the fact that the Liberals were mm. ahead in that seat. So there was a lot of clever tactical play and I think there's, there's big questions about the election because I think Labor's big tax policy platform cost them. Um, uh, the tax cut promise from Scott Morrison worked for him because it was such a contrast with Labor, but there were tactical things as well where in fact um, Labor didn't learn enough from its own success in the 2016 campaign, got a bit complacent. The Liberals certainly learnt from their failures or mistakes in 2016. Mm. Jack, you wrote in your Sun Herald column this week that the Labor brand could now probably be defined by the plastic <laughs> Aldi shopping bag that yeah, Wang Mo delivered his $100,000 in cash. <laughs> is, it that, is it that bad? Is the Labor brand that damaged? I think so. I, th I think in New South Wales, absolutely it is. I mean, it's... It's not even, um, you couldn't even say what Labor stands for in New South Wales except for, you know, graft, um, you know, near corruption, if not outright corruption. Sexual harassment. Sexual yeah. harassment um, and careerism, just rank careerism from, you know, the, the people who have moved through Sussex Street. That's in New South Wales. I mean, federally, you know, Albo has kept extremely quiet, you could say, the last week or so um, since um, ICAC has been on. He is obviously from the Labor left. I don't know how much voters differentiate, but um, not at all. I would imagine. Yeah, and and you know he was he was certainly backed into the job by the Labor right in, in New South Wales, who prefer him over a Victorian. Um, so I think, 
you know, federally, they've just got so much... They don't even have a policy platform at the moment. Like, you know, sometimes you, you can ring up... You know, I've rung up Albo's press secretary recently and been like, what's your actual position on this at the moment? It's like, well, we took this to the election, but we're not quite sure yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, TBA. Um, so if they can't even decide, to know, you know, low-level policy positions on religious freedom or whatever, mm-hmm. in terms of tell- selling a message to voters as to what Labor stands for in the 21st century, and particularly when it comes to energy policy and that kind of stuff, or emissions policy, they... I mean, we talk about the Liberal Party's failings. The Labor Party's completely failed to, to sell to working people who are going to be, dare I say it, at the coalface of, you know, a transition to a low-energy economy, um, how that might happen in their interests. I just want to quickly... Yep. 1993, 1969, 2007, newspaper headlines were talking about an election being won by one side or the other. This guarantees their future. 1996, we know what happened. 1969... It was a 7% swing to Gough Whitlam. 2007, Kevin Rudd got a 5.5% a mm. swing. Mm. And th- this is, we talk about cycles and that complacency that gets in. If you don't have an agenda, if you're not sure what mm. you're doing, you can get swept away very quickly. And that's well, just yep. pointing to a bit of the history that uh, okay. these things go on. Cats can yeah. happen. So just finally, I would like each of you to please give um, the Morrison government's first 100 days a report mark A to E. Well, um, on an A to E, uh, well, it would be something like um, could try harder. Um, <laughs> is that a is that uh, a, there would a be C a plus? C? That would be a C. No, it'd be a flat C, not flat minus, C. not plus, because because so much of what they do is like smack bang in the middle. Um, they're yet to outline everything they want to do, um, and they're yet to deliver you know incredible results. That, that take us all by surprise and impress us with something that they've done. And so I think that means it's a C. What about you, Jack? Yeah, I would say about a C. Just workmanlike, you know, yep. workmanlike, yeah. Shane? I was going for a C plus, but, oh. but it could... What's the plus t- You're such an Because <laughs> they're still in office and they haven't killed anyone yet. <laughs> um, but it could change very quickly as the economy plays out. Okay, that is about all we have time for. Please help me in thanking David, Shane and Jacqueline for their time today. Before I let you go, I just want to say that there has never been a more important time for journalists of this calibre and commitment to work in thriving and growing newsrooms like those of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I can tell you that we are hiring new reporters, we are appointing new foreign correspondents, we are launching new products, and every single day we are doing journalism that impacts the health of Australia's democracy, economy and society. And the reason that we are able to do that is because people like some of the people in this room have decided that what we do is worth paying for and have signed up to be subscribers. If you are not yet a subscriber but you got something out of today, I would love it if you would go home tonight and Google subscribe (laughs) Sydney Morning Herald where you will find out about all the offers and exclusives that we give our subscribers. Or if you would like, you can subscribe to Please Explain for free on your (laughs) podcast channel of choice. Thanks so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you, Troy.